We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We made it to Tuesday. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions or pretty much whatever questions that you have in your heart that you're dealing with or struggling with. We'll do the best that we can to answer. Uh, The way to get through is to call area code 210-340-9585. 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. It's Tuesday. There's not a bunch going on, so we'll get right to questions today. Here is a question from our email inbox from Eric. Eric says, do red-letter Christians even follow or believe in the Old Testament? Since their emphasis is only what Jesus spoke and taught in the gospel, I find their point ironic in part because, in truth, Jesus wrote the entire Bible. As a follow-up question, red-letter Christians, in their promotion of Jesus' teaching, put their emphasis on social justice issues. Is this a relevant point for us as Christians to make? If anything, I just lump their stand along with the current socio-political, social justice warriors agenda. Eric, it's always frustrating to me. There's a couple of things to sort of sort out here. Um, I don't believe that the people who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what Paul writes. And I don't bother myself. With, I, it's, it's impossible for me to believe that, that those people are born-again Christians. I think they look for the lovey-dovey stuff that Jesus wrote, and they don't want anything at all to do with the really hard stuff he wrote. I mean, if they were really red-letter Christians, all they'd have to do is read the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. They're all in red letters. Jesus wrote them. 
But see, they ignore all of that. And Eric, it's because they have no understanding at all of the Bible, how it was compiled, um, a, a book that is is completely harmonious, um, 40 authors, different men writing over about a 1,500-year period of time, and we come up with a book that is completely internally consistent. They don't get that, and it's because they don't want to. So uh, it is ironic, that, but they would deny that Jesus wrote the whole Bible, um, only what Jesus wrote in red letters. And then there's some of the red letter Christians who will take what Jesus wrote in the red letters, uh, Eric, and, and they'll say, well, but, but he didn't really write that. There's a whole group called uh, um, um, the Gospel According to Jesus, the, the Jesus Seminar people that was big in the 1970s. Um, it's just another way of tearing pages out of your Bible because you don't want to obey. So, Eric, I really, really don't believe they're born-again Christians. Um, If they were really born again, and if, as we know, the Spirit of God pushed the pins of men to write the Word of God, we'd want to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is. And, And then we would grow in the knowledge of God's will for our lives. By the way, that's the only two things that we're told to grow in as it relates to knowledge. We're not supposed to seek knowledge. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. But we're growing the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of his will for our lives. That's what real intellect is all about. Relative to the social justice perspective on it, they do that because these are people that are more influenced by the world than by the Bible, the book they don't believe in. So, you know, they're typically on the left side of the political spectrum. Um, usually they're very idealistic. Uh, they have no solutions to offer, but they're always complaining about something. They're always jumping on a bandwagon because, you see, if you don't really know Jesus, you're always looking for something else that will fill, fulfill. So, Eric, that's pretty much, um, I think, agreeing with where you're coming from. I just, uh, it breaks my heart because they're missing out on so much. Let's go to Bandera, Texas now and talk with Cecilia. Cecilia, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, Yes, Pastor Ron, thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a bed and breakfast in Bandera, and I had a gentleman that stayed with me. that uh, He came to a conference in Kerrville, it's been maybe a month, six weeks ago, uh, called GLOW. And it's a Christian organization, and uh, I'd never heard of that. They had a big conference at the end of the hills in Kerrville. And it it used to be just for women, and now they have let gentlemen attempt or (laughs) into, I I don't know. And I just wasn't familiar with it. Yeah, I'll do some research. I'll do some research, Cecilia. I'm not quite sure, um, but I'll get some answers for you before the end of the program today. So if you'll hang on a little bit. Well, one of the things that I, I was laughing, not laughing at you, but just laughing with you. Um, oh, no, sir, you know, I 
Okay, we, we can't have things for men or for women anymore, so we've got to change things. And usually we do that simply to, to get a bigger crowd. So uh, the fact that I'm not familiar with it um, um, means that it's, it's, it's probably not something that's really, really big or really, really popular. But I'll find out, Cecilia, and let you know. The, um, the only other... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But the That's only okay. other thing, because I do listen to KSLR, um, on Sundays, the gentleman who established the cross on the hill in Kerrville, mm-hmm. uh, and they are continuing to build it and with the, the sculptures, the sculpture garden, or mm-hmm. the, I, I can't remember. I've, I've been to it. And he happened to mention uh, on the station, on the radio station on Sunday, about this group being in Kerrville a couple of months ago, and then supposedly, I, I don't know, one of the ladies there. There was a there, supposedly there's been some miracles there at oh. the place in Kerrville and. I don't know if you know anything about that. Well, I don't, Cecilia, but I'll look it up and find out there'll be information. I've got a really good friend who's a a Calvary Chapel pastor in Kerrville. His name is Max Green, and and he'll be able to give me some information. So if I can't get you the information today, uh, I'll get it on the program by tomorrow. Um, Okay, um, that'll be fine. Thank you, Cecilia. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, just very briefly, it says its glow is giving light to our world, spreading the Gospels through tracts on salvation, health, prayer, prophecy, and reliability of the Bible, based in Clovis, California. Um, one of the things that we really want to be skeptical of is the groups that advertise a lot of miracles are being done. Um, You know, a miracle, by definition, is an extraordinary event. If miracles happened the way churches and these events indicated that they happened, then they wouldn't be miracles at all. They'd be ordinaries. And what we've got to understand is that whenever you're in a group that's promoting miracles or promoting um, um, demonstrations of the spiritual gifts, things like that, then then you're really in a sort of a crazy charismatic crowd. And we just really need to be careful of that. We need to be very discerning. That's why I will get you the information that I can. Um, I'll call Pastor Max and see what he knows about. So, Cecilia, thank you very, very much, and I'll do the best I can, and my producer won't let me forget by tomorrow. Here's a question from our email inbox again. This one is from Kirby. Pastor Ron, in regards to your teaching in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus walked through the angry crowd untouched, wouldn't that act be considered a miracle in and of itself for the people who were clamoring for a miracle to be performed. Sure, it would dawn on them later that it happened, but it would have um, met their demand, and Jesus did it in front of all of them. Uh, I catch your double entendre there, uh, Kirby. Uh, No, it wouldn't be a miracle. Jesus just hid himself from them. Um, I don't think they would have it dawn on them later. And the reason I don't think it would dawn on them later is because those are the people that were looking to get away from Jesus, not people that were looking to Jesus. Now, for those of you in the audience, we were in Luke chapter 4. We finished the chapter this Sunday. 
And the real tragedy was that Jesus, God was in their midst, and and it didn't affect them. They were too familiar with Jesus. This is the kid that we watched grow up, they said. Uh, how could this be? Who does he think he is? That was their response, even though they'd heard about all of the miracles Jesus was doing in Capernaum and other places. They were amazed at his teaching. They understood clearly who he claimed to be when he opened the scroll and read Isaiah 61 and said, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Problem is, they didn't want him. And Jesus won't stay where people don't want him. And so in this case, when they couldn't find him, it was more of a good riddance type of thing, and they just would have gone about their lives. And Kirby, and to all of you in the audience... This is the thing that we really have to examine our hearts with every single day. When God is in your life, he changes that life because he changes you. And there are far too many of us. I'm talking about genuine Christians, not just pretend Christians, but genuine Christians who come to church, they'll come to Bible studies, but it just becomes an exercise of the routine instead of coming with the specific intent of hearing from God and letting what they hear from God change them, not about the person next to them or people that they're having problems with, but but speaking directly to them and then letting that word change our lives. We're basically doing the same thing. We're just telling Jesus, so thanks for hanging out, but now you go your way, I'll go my way. And over and over, especially in the gospel accounts, We see people so close to Jesus, close enough to touch him, close enough to hear him speak, and yet it doesn't change them at all. And that's what we really have to be afraid of. If we ever get to that point where we're no longer able to be touched by Jesus, then just like the people in his hometown, we're way too familiar with him and we're accomplishing nothing. So I hope that helps. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Isaac. He says, my question is about why some churches emphasize the Bible more than others. It seems hard to find a Bible teaching church where I live. Isaac, one of the things that I've never been able to understand, and I've been doing this for 20 I'm in our 24th year here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I don't understand why anybody would do anything other than teach the Bible. Think about it for a moment, Isaac. People who are pastors, they get up and they, well, what are we going to teach today? Or some of them will have a plan, certainly, throughout the year. But every week they've got to come up with a sermon. Every week they've got to come up with an idea. Well, I want to touch the people. I want to, and their hearts are right. Maybe it's just the poor way that seminaries are teaching people to teach the Bible. But they've got to come up with an idea. I couldn't live with that pressure. I absolutely couldn't live with that pressure. I don't have to think about clever sayings. I don't have to look for illustrations. All I have to do is study the text set before me. I have never spent in all of these years an extra minute trying to figure out what I'm going to say the next Sunday or the next Wednesday or the next Friday. Because we're going to start right where we left off. Now, Isaac, I don't know why some churches 
frankly, I don't know why any church wouldn't do it. That seems to me to be the model that was given to us in Acts chapter 2. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Well, what we have in our Bibles is the apostles' doctrine. And why they do it differently, I have no idea. Maybe they just haven't tried it and don't understand how dynamic the word is. I've actually had people, other pastors, ask me, seriously, you're not going to teach all the way through the Bible, every verse. Yeah, we are. But the beauty of that, Isaac, is that I don't miss anything in all the Bible. I can really say, as the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20, in his emotional farewell to the Ephesian elders, I can actually say to my church, the day that I'm done here, I can say, as I bid you goodbye, I thank you for your faith. I thank you for your faithfulness and your love and your support for me. But I have not failed to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And I personally think that's our job. And so if it's our job, that's what we ought to do. It also, wherever it is that you live, Isaac, it breaks my heart that it's hard to find the church that teaches the Bible where you live. It seems so obvious to me. We just teach the Bible. I don't have to come up with lists. I don't have to come up with cute sayings. I don't have to figure out funny stories. All I do is say, would you open your Bibles too? And then we start at the verse we're starting and I read to the verse we're done and then we break it down verse by verse. That's why it takes us so long to get through the Bible, but I don't understand either, Isaac. Wish I had a solution, but I don't. Find a church that teaches the Bible. And there are more than you think there are. Not just preaches the Bible or includes scriptures, but I mean teaches the living, active Word of God sharper than a double-edged sword. Here's a question from Patricia. Pastor Ron, it seems like God blesses some people and withholds blessings from others. Does God have favorites? Patricia, let me tell you something. You're his favorite. And you have sort of a distorted view of who he is. Now, maybe if you mean God isn't answering your prayers, well, the problem's not with God. The problem's with your prayers and the heart behind those prayers. God blesses believers and unbelievers alike. But for God to withhold his blessings is so contrary to his nature. Blessing is what he lived and died to do. But you see, he loves you so much, Patricia, that if you're asking for something that would hurt you, if you're asking for something that isn't good for you, God is going to say no. If you look at somebody who has more money than you do, especially if that person is an unbeliever, read the 73rd Psalm. Surely God is good to Israel. The writer says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, why are you blessing them and I don't have enough to live on? God doesn't withhold anything. And he considers all of us alike. He's no respecter of persons, male or female, slave or free, rich or poor. 
oh, you need to do it. I'm going to use the term that I use in our church all the time here, Patricia. All you need to do is get under the spout where the glory comes out. You can't help but to be blessed. You just need to be content with God's portion of blessing, God's perspective on blessing, and not your own. I can promise you, Patricia, everybody, whether they appear to be blessed or not, if they don't know Jesus Christ, their lives, their hearts are empty. I can also promise you that any who are Christians, who are not in the will of God, they're fighting against God, and their lives, likewise, are empty. They're saved, but they're missing out on all that God has for them. The other thing you need to know, Patricia, is that when you talk to people about how they're doing, oh, man, everything is so great. I can't, life couldn't, you know, we lie. That's the truth. In the years before I got saved, as miserable as I was, as much pain as my life was in, my dad always taught me, Ronnie, that's private. Nobody needs to know your problems. So I told everybody the same lies. Oh, fine. Praise God. I said those things, unfortunately, even before I was a believer. So the whole idea is that God is a God who longs to bless you, Patricia. Let me ask you to read the book of Philippians, four chapters. 20 minutes tops if you're an average reader. But read it and let the Spirit of God speak to you. Paul was in prison. People were taking advantage of him being in prison. They thought they could kind of make trouble for him. They could win over some of the people that were following Paul by saying, well, if Paul was really in God's will, if he was really an apostle, he wouldn't be in jail. And Paul said, you know, whether they preach the gospel from a good motive or not, doesn't matter. I rejoice that the gospel is being preached. And then he gets a perspective. He says, it's become clear to me that throughout the entire palace guard, all of the brothers were encouraged to proclaim the word of God more boldly. Why? Because Paul wasn't doing it. They picked up the slack. God got to use them. Now, Paul, if he was calling the station and asking a question like you did, maybe he'd say something like, it seems like God is blessing the people out there who are proclaiming the gospel. He's not blessing me. But in the process of having Paul in prison, Paul was writing what we call the prison epistles in our Bible. Letters that we wouldn't have had yeah, Paul loose and free could have saved more people, but in the last 2,000 years, how many people have been saved by the letters that he wrote from prison? My goodness, it's perspective, Patricia. God doesn't have a favorite unless you're his favorite. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he makes every one of us feel like we're so very special. He has time to meet us where we are. If we'll put forth any effort at all, read the Word. I promise you, you'll experience blessing. Hope that helps. How much time we got? We're 
just about two and a half minutes for this. Let me see if I got a quick question for two and a half minutes. Um, here's what I can do. Anonymous says, is your church a 501c3, and if so, why? I think the church should be completely independent of the government. Well, Anonymous, you're not thinking it through. The government has no authority in our church, doesn't tell me what to do, what to teach. Now, that may be changing in the not-too-distant future in our world. But as of now, it has nothing to do with that. The 501c3 simply allows people to give to the church where a tax-exempt entity, and then they can write off a portion of their contributions as tax benefit on their personal taxes. Why wouldn't we want to do that? If I could bless the people, we want to bless them. Not only that, if they have more, guess what? We have more. So that's exactly why we do it. We, we're taking advantage of the law. You remember when the Apostle Paul appealed to Caesar? He was taking advantage of an existing law. He wasn't perverting the law. He was just taking advantage of it. Well, that's exactly what we churches, and most of us are tax-exempt, 501c3 organizations. We have to follow the law. We have to have a board. We have to meet. We've got to do those things. But we do it to be a blessing to the people that God brings us. So there's no political motive. The church isn't dominated or controlled by the government at all. There's no value in being uh, independent. And sometimes in these kind of statements, Anonymous, what we end up doing is we're making political statements about things that we really don't understand. So, yes, our church is a tax-exempt 501c3, and um, the result is a lot of the people who provide for the ministry here at Calvary Chapel, they get a little bit of personal benefit as well. That's a good thing. It's a win-win situation. We have 30 minutes left in the Tuesday program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, we'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh two minutes 340-9585 here is a question from our mobile app from nacho pastor ron i can't quite understand the point being made in hebrews 5 8 and 9 Though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Since we know that Jesus was perfect from birth and without sin, what part of him had to learn obedience, and what part needed to be made perfect? Could you please help? Nacho people have been arguing about this verse for nearly 2,000 years. So this is one of the things that we have to really understand the context. Jesus in his humanity was just like you. He was just like me. So he could 
emphasize with us. He went through things. Now, I don't, I'll, I'll never understand what God had to learn. But in his humanity, he had to grow up. He had to learn things. Let me be more specific. As a child learning his father's trade, his stepfather's trade, he would learn how to be a carpenter. He would learn in the Hebrew scriptures in the synagogue. And my message just this past Sunday, I made the point that the synagogue that Jesus was in in Luke chapter 4 was one that he was in every Sabbath day from the time he was six years old until the time he was 12. He learned. But he also had to learn in his humanity what completing the course was. That's what it means. One made perfect. It means that he finished his course. And by finishing his course, he became the source of eternal salvation for everyone who says yes to him. So, yeah, he suffered. Jesus, as a child, I'm sure, had childhood illnesses. I'm sure his heart broke with such a tender heart even as a child he learned to be obedient to adults even when their hearts weren't right but every day he learned he grew in wisdom and stature physically he grew but he grew intellectually as well Why did he go through all that when he knew everything? Because remember, Nacho, that everything Jesus did on this earth, he did as a human. The miracles he did as a human by the power of the Holy Spirit. The the teaching, it was the man Jesus teaching. But remember, he was saying what he heard his father say. So just like you, just like me, he had to learn what obedience was about. And of course he did well, but we remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me. Yes, three times, three times the Father evidently said there is none. So he had to learn obedience unto death. It's a staggering thought to me, but that's what it means he needed to be complete. Maybe you see the word perfect in your New Testament. It means complete. When he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit and gave up his spirit, he was complete. And he learned. Hope that helps, Nacho. Thank you very much for the question. Here is a question from Wes. Wes says, I am praying for revival. What would a revival look like? And do you think it's possible? Wes, I'm praying for revival all the time. Now, part of our problem with revival is we think typically, you say, what would it look like? Or, well, too, too many of us think it would look like a world that would be transformed. But revival starts in each of us individually. 
A revival isn't something that just happens. A revival is something that God uses people who are willing to cause to happen. You know, when I was in my high school years and the Jesus movement was just kicking off, that was the last revival, um, a true revival sent by God, the Jesus movement days, the hippies were getting saved and converted, the disenfranchised, those who had no hope, those who had sort of tuned out and started dropping drugs, using psychedelic drugs. Um, they just dropped off the face of the earth, and then suddenly the Spirit of God began to stir their hearts. Nobody was praying for hippies to get saved. It was God's initiative. Now, Wes, I told you I'm praying for revival, as you are. I really, at my advancing age, I would love to see one more genuine move of God's Spirit before Jesus comes, or before I die. I would love to see one more genuine move of His Spirit. I would love to be able to proclaim the gospel just talking to people and have the power of the Spirit come upon them like like He did in Acts chapter 2. I would love for revival to begin in the disenfranchised parts of our culture, our society. The hippies, nobody wanted anything to do with them. Well, we might look at the homosexual community here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Spirit of God began to move among the people that far too many of us as Christians have just given up on? Wouldn't it be great to see the Spirit move in our elementary schools or our junior high schools or among teachers. Well, that's the revival I'm talking about. And if you've been listening to this program, Wes, um, you know that I believe Jesus is coming soon. But every day that we're here still, gives us an opportunity to see his hand move one more time. So yeah, it's certainly possible, but God's going to make the initiative. It's not something that we can conjure up. Again, it's something we should pray for. But let me give you one last key to revival, real revival. And I'm stealing this from J. Vernon McGee. He said to Christians, if you want revival... The way to pray for it is to draw a circle on the ground, stand in that circle and say, Lord, let revival start inside this circle. See, he understood what revival meant. It meant U.S. It meant me. If the church was praying for revival, the church would be revived. And then he would use us like he did the first century church to win the hearts of people in the world. Think about it, 3,000 people got saved the first day. That's just the men. Another 5,000 a couple of days later. By all accounts, there's 20,000 or more people who are Christians in just the first week of the church. So yeah, I think it's possible, but it has to start 
with those of us who are in the church. One, we've got to be willing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Second, we have to focus on personal holiness, living for God and not for the things of this world. And we'll do those two things. And maybe God will use us to start a revival. I hope that's the case. Here is another question from Wes that I didn't see until just now. Uh, Wes, I'm sorry I passed this question up for the last uh, three or four days just because I didn't see it till now. Wes says, how forceful should pastors be in confronting people in their church who are sinning? Wes, my job as a pastor, and I'll just deal with me, my church. Um, my job isn't to pound people. Uh, my job is to declare the word and let the Holy Spirit do the pounding. Now, if we've got people in our church who we know are coming every week, they claim to be Christians, and they are living in willful sin, of course we have to deal with it. If we love people, we got to take care of them. And the only way to take care of them is to show them the right way. Matthew 18 outlines a process for this. We go to people individually. Here's part of the problem. Wes, when, when people in church know somebody's living in sin and the church body doesn't do anything about it, you know, a lot of times people come to the pastor or to, 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 to my staff and they'll say, so-and-so is doing this. Well, go tell them. No, I don't want to tell them. They'll think I'm judging them. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. Judge their behavior. If they don't listen, then we're to take two others with us and confront them again in love. If that doesn't work, then we tell them to the church. Then you come to the pastors, or then you come to the elders. And you let us know so that we can then go. And then, like Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if they refuse, you know, Paul writes that if somebody is a professing believer living in sin, we're to have nothing to do with them but not until after we've tried to win them. And Paul put that man in Corinth out of the church, handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And it worked, by the way, so that we should be that forceful. But remember, we're not the Holy Spirit police. We're certainly not people who have a gifting to point fingers at people. We just need to tell them about Jesus and teach them the word. So, Wes, thank you. I'm sorry it took me so long to get to that question. Here is a question from Richard from our mobile app. I know you don't like to be political. Whenever a question starts like that, they're going to ask me a political question. But do you think God is disappointed with Donald Trump's actions, or is he, Trump, just being ignorant, akin to his actions and poor choices? Richard, Donald Trump is like everybody else. He needs Jesus. God, how could God be disappointed with Donald Trump? God doesn't know him. Now, obviously, God knows who he is. But Donald Trump needs Jesus. And for us as Christians to have expectations that suddenly he's, he's somehow connected to God just because he's a Republican or a conservative misses the whole point. Donald Trump is going to keep doing and saying dumb things. 
Now, he's doing some good things, too. But he's going to keep doing these really, really dumb things. He's going to dig a deeper and deeper hole for himself because he can't help himself for all of sin and they're falling short of the glory of God. That's in the continuous present tense. It means we all continue to continue to sin continually and continually are falling short of the glory of God. Donald Trump is just one of those people who's sinning. Have no expectations. Pray for your president. Pray for his family. But pray that he gets saved. So, yes, he's going to keep making terrible choices. He's going to keep putting his foot in his mouth and causing problems. You know, one of the things that, that you'd think a president would be savvy enough to understand is that if his agenda is going to get accomplished, he needs to be a uniter of people. Well, that's not Donald Trump. His expertise seems to be in dividing people. And in his particular moment, when he's just nominated a Supreme Court justice that he needs the support of every conservative and a few Democrats as well, he's just behaved in such a way that's to isolate some of them. And believe me, the moment his approval ratings drop to a point where there's no longer any significant threat to those who oppose him, then they're going to start opposing even his Supreme Court nominations. So I don't like to be political because the problem isn't a political one. The problem is a spiritual one, Richard. Donald Trump needs Jesus. Barack Obama needed Jesus. George Bush, both of them needed Jesus. It's just that simple. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Daniel. Wait a minute, I think we've got... Here? I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. Daniel's question. What is the meaning of megachurch? Daniel, it is from the Greek word megas. It means very big, very powerful. Um, and it's a big church. Now, technically, I think the definition of a mega church is 2,000 people, sort of where church experts draw the line. If you've got 2,000 people coming to your church, you are considered a mega church. It's not a big building necessarily. Uh, it's just based on the numbers of the church. So that's what they mean when they're referring to megachurch. Now, there's a couple of issues as we talk about megachurches, Daniel. The first is that coming into a huge group of people makes it easy to sort of sit and be invisible in a church. And unfortunately, a lot of people go because the megachurch is a place where nothing is expected. They don't have to give. There's no scrutiny. Nobody's watching their lives. It's just they're, they're a face in a crowd. Uh, that's not always healthy. The other problem with mega churches is that usually they grow to be big churches based on some charismatic leader, somebody who's gifted to communicate, somebody who tells funny stories. And we've created sort of a culture of pastor worship 
in our church culture, and it's just a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. So, Daniel, I hope that helps. That's what megachurch means, and um, I'm not against megachurches. Um, I think we should all be the church God wants us to be and not strive to be one bit bigger or one bit smaller. Here is a question anonymously. Do you think Christians should attend gay weddings of friends or family members, even if it's just to keep peace in the family? Anonymous, I think we can learn to stand up for what we believe. If your family doesn't know you're a Christian, or if your friends don't know you're a Christian, shame on you. Shame on you. If I were... Now, let me just say this. A a, a wedding is to be a celebration. It should be impossible for a Christian to celebrate an event that is going to condemn somebody to an eternity in hell unless they get born again. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. How could we go celebrate that? Sometimes keeping peace in the family is simply a cop-out. So here's what we do. When somebody invites you, you say, look, you know I love you, I care about you, I pray for you to get saved every day. But you know I can't go to this because I believe what Jesus said in the Bible. There's no point in talking about it beyond this. If they don't think you're a friend, that's on them, it's not you. Should we bow to pressure from family members? No. We've got to take a stand. We're, we're, we're way too often, way, way, way too often, we're compromising to such a degree, even in our families, that nobody knows who we really are or what we really believe. I think of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. His life, though a believer, his life was so compromised that he couldn't even spare his own wife being judged. Or his sons-in-law. Judgment is coming. We need to escape. They were looking, who do you think you are? You live just like we do. we got to stop making compromises. If you lose friends, Jesus will be there. In context, he told us that he calls us friends because he told us everything. I'd rather be his friend than the friend of a friend. So I hope that helps. I always think of Jesus when his mother and his brothers and his sisters were going to take control of him because they thought he was crazy, and that's literally what they thought. He's out of his mind. He was teaching the word. People were gathered all around him. Family couldn't get through the crowd, so they sent somebody up. Go tell Jesus that his mother and his brother and his sisters are out here. We need to see him right now. And when word got to Jesus that they were out there, his response was, who are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters? Those who do the will of God. And so he didn't stop doing what he was told by God to do just because it was family. So take a stand. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
Area code 210-340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Here's another anonymous question. It said, uh, you said recently that there is no such thing as a generational curse, but the Bible says there is, so why do you say that? Well, anonymous, because the Bible doesn't say that there is. That's absolute silliness. It's, again, charismatic nonsense. And whenever I say charismatic nonsense, we're charismatic here at Calvary Chapel. We believe in and operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but we do it under control. We do it according to the Word of God, how to practice it. And generational curses... Well, they sell books, they give people excuses for the way they're living, the way they are. But there's no such thing. Now, you're referring to the Ten Commandments. And here's what it says. God's curse extends to four generations. Here's what's important of those who hate him. God's blessing extends to a thousand generations. So unless you hate God, you're not cursed by what your parents or your grandparents or beyond those things did. If you hate God, you're cursed anyway because we're born cursed. Jesus said we're we're born into sin, cursed already. But he died to redeem us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 Understand your Bible, study it, read carefully what it says, and the only thing you have to worry about in terms of a curse is if you hate God. If you hate him, then you should be afraid. But there is no generational curse. That is to miss the point altogether of what the, ball, what, the, what the Bible is saying. So I hope that makes sense. We've got two more minutes. Here's a question that if you get mad at me, then you won't be able to talk to me about it until tomorrow. <laughs> Here's another anonymous question. At what age should we stop spanking our children? Now, obviously, the inference is that we should spank them. Spare the rod, spoil the child. We know that's the case. Spanking corporal punishment is God's design. Not beating, not yelling, not abusing, but spanking. And so if we are consistent and if we are loving in our spanking, and by the way, please, parents, don't ever, ever, ever lay a hand on your child in anger. Not ever. Wait until you cool down, until you can talk to your child about what's happened, what he or she's done, and why you're doing it. Now, obviously, spanking doesn't work for all kids. We who are adults, we need to be creative. But we should spank our children, and we should stop when they're too big to lay across your lap. I, I don't think teenagers ought to be spanked. I think we can be more creative than that. But remember, always, always discipline and love. If you find yourself getting angry, if you find yourself wanting to raise the volume of your voice, never, ever, ever lay a hand on your child. 
I get a lot of criticism for that. That's cruel. Well, then your problem is with God. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. What a wonderful station this is. May God bless you, keep you, tell somebody Jesus loves them. See you tomorrow. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.